Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Dear listeners, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. We're now ending the month of Ramadan and I know there are competing and well-deserving projects that ask for your monetary assistance. But please consider making a contribution towards the Thinking Muslim podcast. As you know, we are all volunteers on this project. But we want to build the recognition of this podcast by hiring a marketing and social media assistant to firstly get the podcast to a wider audience And secondly, to take this to another level by adding video interviews. If you value well-researched and in-depth content and want to help us move forward, then your kind contributions will be much appreciated. You can go over to thinkingmuslim.com or take a look at the link in the description of this program. Now over to the show. And of course, as we move beyond this artificial engineered environment into the metaverse, which seems to be the next step, it's going to be even stranger and we're going to see even more bizarre forms of human behavior, dysfunctional relationships, mental health crises, relationship collapse. Is modernity destroying the human mind? This is the question I ask my guest this week, Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad. Many of us are fortunate to live in a world where our every desires have been met, yet curiously our ability to process these blessings leads many to a dark place, a state of mental anguish. It seems the more we have, the less happy we are. The more we live in concrete jungles, the more anxious we become. This begs a larger question, is there a fundamental problem with the way we live? Is there a problem with modernity? I explore these ideas with Dr. Winters and ask him, how do we escape the ideological, spiritual and physical maladies of modern living? Abdul Hakim Murad, Dr. Tim Winters, is a founder and dean of the Cambridge Muslim College. Aziz Foundation Professor of Islamic Studies at both Cambridge Muslim College and Ibrahim College, Director of Studies at Wolfson College and Lecturer of Islamic Studies in the Faculty of Divinity at University of Cambridge. He has translated classical works, including a translation of the two volumes of Al-Ghazali's Ihya Ulam al-Din. 
Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. It's a pleasure to have you on the Thinking Muslim podcast. Jazakallah khair for joining us. Wa alaikum assalam. Well, today I want to ask the question whether modernity is affecting or even destroying our minds. Have we lost a sense of perspective that previous generations probably had and how much of this is down to the maladies of modern urban living and the associated ideologies that underpin our lifestyles. So I want to ask, uh, how does Islam address uh, these maladies? As the final message uh, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has bestowed upon humankind, how does Islam help us to navigate modern living without dismissing, I suppose, the necessities that uh, are the requirements of, of life? So there's a lot to get through today, and I feel, Sheikh, you're probably the best person to, to help me and my listeners. So to start with, Dr. Abdul Hakim Murad, um, many theorists claim that we have become increasingly brittle and unprepared for the travails of life. I mean, do you agree with this? And can you explain what's behind this condition? Well, uh, there are different ways of looking at this, of course. One can track the traditional Muslim timetable of history, which generally recognizes the reality of spiritual entropy, that there is a golden age, and then human beings, being subject as we are to gravity, uh, fall away from that. Uh, the hadith says the best of generations is my generation, and then that which follows, and then that which follows. So as far as I can see, consensually, the ummah has assumed that human beings are outwardly, that is to say socially, and also inwardly, that is to say spiritually, uh, unravelling. is a hadith. Never does a time come but that that which comes after it will be worse than it. Uh, and it fits in with the larger prophetic idea of history that uh, God sends a prophet, uh, things are fine for a while, and then there is a degeneration, and another prophet has to come. So we have this cyclic view which is shared generally by most other religious traditions, I think. Uh, but in uh, that's the kind of theological way of looking at it. But uh, it interestingly complements, although it certainly doesn't overlap very much at all, with a certain dissenting voice within Western Enlightenment uh, modernity, which is quite pessimistic. Uh, more recently, you see the kind of decline of Marxism, which used to try and reverse the traditional pessimism of Europe about history and propose that the golden age is in the future rather than in the past, a secularized view of a millennium, uh, and that there was something implicit in the nature of matter itself that would lead to an improvement, better structures, better equality, better happiness, and so forth, uh, dialectical materialism. As that collapsed um, following the evident failure of uh, Marxism, Leninism, really from the 1930s onwards, uh, the disillusionment of people like, um, well, Arthur Kirstler, for instance, uh, Walter Benjamin, um, and a number of others. Uh, it morphed into two things, I think, which is very dominant in, in our culture. Firstly, it morphed into the so-called woke culture, which has a kind of Marxist substrate to it, uh, but which focuses not really on uh, large-scale projects of egalitarian enlightenment and challenges to global inequality, but rather on rather narrow questions of the body, its self-understanding, its aspirations, its desires, its gender, and so forth, which has become 
perhaps disproportionately, a, a preoccupation of the left-wing chattering classes in the West, and which is based still on a kind of optimism. They do think that we can resolve these questions and march hand in hand into a world in which we're simply equal individuals without these traditional labors, uh, labels of sexuality, gender, and so forth. Uh, but it's also collapsed in another direction, which is the no less Marxist uh, uh, Frankfurt School, uh, Adorno, Horkheimer, Habermas, uh, and a few other, you know, still some surviving representatives of it, which is still Marxist, but has jettisoned the optimism, following, I guess, Walter Benjamin with his idea of the angel of history, which is an essay inspired by Paul Clay's famous painting of this strange dystopian creature uh, walking backwards, uh, that humanity, as it moves through history, is always looking backwards. We can only see the past. We've got no idea what the future is. And as a result, we just endlessly blunder. Uh, so the pessimism of, of Adorno in particular, who actually in many ways is Islamically quite interesting, I think his idea of alienation is not so far from some of the things that obviously in a more ontological vein Muslims have liked to say about human sadness, um, Horkheimer as well, uh, maybe a few of the Parisians. And this is mirrored by the, uh, the bodying forth of this pessimism in the whole tradition of modern art, which until 100 years ago, Western art was essentially about progress, optimism, the discernibility of beauty, the nobility of the human form, landscapes, even the post-impressionists were like that. And then suddenly, uh, in the interwar period, you had Cubism, George Gross' decline into uh, the sense that what is most fundamental about ourselves is what is darkest, the dream world, the Freudian id, uh, so that the finalists for the Turner Prize each year in this country look like various evocations of hell, really. Their presentation of what is true about us is the opposite of traditional art, which was about there's an angelic nature to which we aspire and which we in some way represent. Nowadays, it's all about bringing to the surface the dark brokenness of our condition. Damien Hurst is the kind of hero for that. Um, Tracy Emin who apparently recently married a rock in her garden as an example of the dysfunctionality of modern relationships and modern everything. So, uh, yeah, the, the, the pessimism of modernity is actually running in interesting tandem with the pessimism that I think is a natural and healthy part of prophetic religion. You work at university and you come across many young people and... Um... Uh, it, it just seems to me that, um, and maybe this is a broad generalization, but uh, many young people today lack uh, some very basic skills of resilience and fortitude that maybe our father's generations uh, would have had in, in, you know, in, in plentiful supply. I mean, why is that? Why do, do young people today feel uh, have less of these uh, character building qualities uh, that, that, you know, as I said, that, that I would imagine our forefathers would have had? Well, uh, one has to avoid generalisation because I come across a lot of very resilient and smart and uh, outward-looking young people. But it's certainly the case that there is an uptick in mental health diagnoses that the uh, uh, prescriptions for antidepressants in, in England and Wales doubled in the last 10 years. And clearly there is a, a malaise afoot and coronavirus, I think, only brought to the surface certain things that were... <coughs> already present as a sense of anomie, alienation, discomfort. Uh, one perhaps 
rather obvious diagnosis is the collapse of a traditional metaphysical or eschatological framework for people's lives. Humanity, since the upper Paleolithic, has believed in an unseen reality behind the forms of things. It's really absolutely innate to a correctly traditionally functioning human neurology uh, to have a sense that there is meaning, uh, to celebrate that meaning, to evoke it collectively through forms of ritual, forms of pilgrimage, fasting seasons and so forth. This, This is part of normative ancient humanity and whether or not you buy into all the presuppositions of evolutionary biology from their perspective the brain is designed for an upper paleolithic hunter-gatherer lifestyle in which people don't have many distractions in which genders are clearly differentiated where play rather than work is the normality for people's lives and where religion or religions is the master signifier for everything and the brain functions properly and generates its, uh, its various secretions and endorphins and serotonins and so forth on the basis of the extent to which we are living something that somehow reflects that normal human environment, which Islam might want to identify with fitra somehow. Uh, modernity really on purpose kicks that away and says that that's all backwardness and we can be liberated by exploring our own subjectivity in a world which is increasingly artificial and in which the various lethal discomforts of primordial life are abolished. Uh, It doesn't seem to have worked that way. Uh, Freud, for instance, in many of his uh, very pessimistic writings, really uh, indicates that the human psyche and human functionality uh, relates to a form of existence uh, that modernity is crushing, and therefore we're all going to get more and more sick mentally. He was very uh, black in his diagnosis. He says it's inevitable. There's no way we can get back to that magical world of deities and spirits in glades and Stonehenge and whatever it was that we were up to in primordial times. Uh, but, uh, yeah, mental health is going to be an increasing issue as physical health improves. He sees them almost as... Uh, complementary evolutions. So yeah, you see this in a lot of young people, the absence of a master signifier, the absence of hope that uh, things are ultimately significant, the absence of the sense that beauty is meaningful, the absence of hope for life after death. Uh, all of these are very significant blows to our traditional humanity. And although we're resilient and very versatile species that can exist in such a wide variety of habitats, uh, uh, there are there are limits. Uh, so one of the big questions, maybe the big question facing us nowadays, is uh, the extent of neuroplasticity. Can we indefinitely adapt to a life which is increasingly weird and far from what was for 99% of the history of our species normal? Uh, or will there be a point at which we see diminishing returns and the brain and consequently everything else about what's important to our life starts to become dysfunctional. Uh, Answer, don't know, but we're certainly not in a very happy place at the moment. Yeah, that's very interesting. And how how much does, I mean, I I often listen to uh, your, your lectures and you speak about the modern consumer society and how the pursuit of material goods Uh, is harming us. Um, How much of that is also a contributing factor in 
in sort of a development of these uh, maladies that impact the human mind? Well, greed and excess are not a new possibility. A hundred thousand years ago, you were in a, a, a berry bush or something, and you could always eat too many berries. So consumerism and excess are not necessarily something that uh, is you know, new. Uh, however, the problem seems to be uh, what I would describe as nature deficit disorder. Uh, for instance, this morning, I was with a student and a fox ran past the uh, window of my study and I pointed this fox out to the student and she was so delighted and said, that's the best thing I've seen all day and really was brightened up just by the sight of this fox. Um, there is something, and again, uh, the biologists, the paleobiologists might explain this, which we immediately respond to when we are surrounded by virgin nature in particular. Not so much you know, walking through Hyde Park, but seeing you know, the, the majesty and the beauty and the seasonality of traditional nature. Uh, to the extent that we're taken away from that, we're taken away from our habitat, we're mice in a maze, and we will be more or less dysfunctional and unhappy. So yeah, I, I, I didn't see it so much as being in a consumer society, but in a world of meaningless, excessive indulgence of the endless messages that are fired at us about the status that will accrue when we consume certain goods and services, uh, the, the monetizing of human envy, human status anxiety, uh, which makes us constantly uncomfortable because our desires when manipulated by these corporate megastructures, are hugely powerful, contributing to our sense of self-esteem or the lack of it. And people are making inconceivable amounts of money just out of stupid things like brands and new holiday destinations and the latest iPhone and things that are intrinsically really trivial, mostly not necessary. But there's so much money to be made that, and so little public wisdom to encourage young people in particular to recognize the relativism and triviality of these things. The people just get lost in it. Uh, and as a result, they suffer because these are not things that are natural to our flourishing. What is natural to our flourishing is very basic things, looking at the sunset, praying, being in love, attending to old people. Um, those things which have always been part of the way in which human beings find real fulfillment, those are increasingly being pushed aside and replaced by the things that people can make a lot of money out of. And that, of course, results in all kinds of inner traumas, panic attacks, dieting disorders, cutting, suicidal thoughts, new kinds of allergy. Uh, there's so many things going on which are epiphenomena of this inward sickness, which is really part and parcel of the human shift away from the sacred and towards the profane. That's really interesting. Um, you've described now uh, on a few occasions human nature and fitra and how human beings should live and, and how possibly modernity has moved us away from our, our natural living. I, I want to explore the concept of fitra a little further. I mean, I've, I've always understood fitra as a and a state you achieve by by giving the shahada when you become a Muslim or when you when you uh, when you are born you and you acknowledge you have the, the mental capacities to acknowledge Allah Subhanahu wa Taala uh, you are at one with your fitra you have conceptualized uh, Allah's place in your life and and now 
you know, you you follow uh, the the deen of Allah subhanahu wa taala. But what I get from uh, from what you're describing here is, uh, it it's a little bit more than that. You have to live a spiritual and physical life that conforms to your fitrah in order for you to to benefit, I suppose, from the life that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants you to lead. Is that a fair uh, summary of, of how you understand fitrah? Well, fitrah is a complex concept for which one struggles to find an adequate English translation. It's defined to some extent in the famous hadiths of the Mi'raj, the famous moment where the angel hands the holy prophet to goblets, one of wine, one of milk. And he chooses the milk and is told or in another narrative, uh, you are upon the fitra, or you've been guided to the fitra. And that is interpreted uh, in many ways. One way is that, obviously, it's a kind of anti-Christian idea that the goblet represents communion, the Eucharist, original sin, redemption, the whole Christian structure of how human beings get close to God. Um, But it's also the case that when you consider the difference between the two liquids, wine is ultimately from nature. It's the juice of the grape, but it's been processed and made into something that's not true to itself. It's been denatured through fermentation. It results in a process of inebriation that diminishes the imago dei, the image of God within us. Whereas the milk, which represents in this hadith the fitra, if you're inclined to the milk rather than the wine, is unmediated, it's uncorrupted, it's a symbol of virgin nature sustaining us directly. So to say, well, that just means the shahada is not quite adequate, I think that's not what the hadith is reaching for. Uh, Fitra in the Arabic language is related very much to nature. nature. So in Arabic now they say al-hayat al-fitriya, referring to natural life. Um, when Allah says, Father, is the one who brings heavens and earth into being through this instantiation of nature, uh, that it has the sense of being brought forth, of growth. It's in that register of rich Quranic celebration of the principle of life itself and how it comes out of the dead earth, which we're constantly urged to, to contemplate. So uh, I think that one of the senses of fitra really has to be the conventional translation is often the primordial natural disposition, which is related to the Abrahamic Hanifiya, um, the original religion. Uh, and therefore, it's, simul- it's synonymous in a certain way with the idea of authenticity. It is living in a way that is commensurate with what's normal for human beings, a natural style of life. Uh, and I think that's generally the way in which the Ummah has understood the term. It's not really doctrinal. It's to do with lifestyle and inhabiting the fullness of our humanity. So, I, I mean, I, I, you know, one can infer from this that modern urban living is anti-fitra. It's against uh, our human nature. I mean, how would you, how would you respond to that? Yeah, of course. And that's the whole point of the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution was to push nature away from us so that we'd be safe from its depredations, from the epidemics, from toothache, from whatever. Um, And the modern high-tech urban landscape is the latest and most absolute form of that. You can walk for miles through a shopping centre or an airport and not see any living thing 
and that's how it's meant to be. But that's not really how we're meant to be, because we all know that we feel better when we're walking through a forest or on the beach or something. It's a very primitive but authentic thing that gets the endorphins going in a way that walking past all of the retail outlets at Stansted Airport just can't really supply for. That's an unnatural habitat that we've created for ourselves because, you know, we like goods and services and people make money out of that. So, uh, yeah, we are fish out of water. We are not in a natural habitat. And as a result, of course, we feel unease. Sometimes in order to deal with that unease, we anesthetize ourselves by going into those shops and engaging in some retail therapy and stocking up on more whatever it might be to kind of take the soul away from its sense of spiritual thirst and its craving for beauty and for nature. Um, but it's a very poor substitute for the real thing. So, yeah. And of course, as we move beyond this artificial engineered environment into the metaverse, which seems to be the next step, it's going to be even stranger and we're going to see even more bizarre forms of human behavior, dysfunctional relationships, mental health crises, relationship collapse. Um, there seems to be a collapse in testosterone and sexuality at the moment. Uh, birth rates are going down. Very fundamental aspects of human functionality are collapsing now. And I think that's just where modernity is taking us because it wants to hypnotize us, to make us comatose so that it can you know, keep those cash registers ringing. Uh, and I don't see it in the culture a sufficiently strong countervailing force that can know when that has to stop. And that's interesting when you talk about a countervailing force. I mean, it, it seems to me that when we uh, look at the Muslim world and, and the Muslim countries, um, most of these uh, pursue this, a similar path of modernization that mm -hmm. Western capitalist economies have pursued for the last two and a half centuries. And we have even, even those governments or states that are ostensibly at least claim to be Islamic, uh, they, they do pursue uh, this pathway. Are you, are you arguing for a, a, a different pathway to, you know, to, to realize uh, Islamic modernization? Well, modernization in its conventional sense is anti-religion and pro-dunya, if you like. Uh, and we're seeing the consequences of this, not just in the crisis in the human mind, but also the biosphere. It's collapsing. We're not just destroying our brains and our relationships, but we're also frying the planet, which is <laughs> quite an achievement, really, when you consider the, the scale of the sustainability and the brilliance of its um, sustainable systems. We've managed to, to damage it, perhaps irreparably. Uh, but the elites in the Muslim world, they are sometimes like the proverbial Amazon Indians who emerge from the rainforest and are completely dazzled by something modern. They see a car and they worship it or something. Um, in many cases, particularly in desert countries where you know, grandparents might have been living effectively in the Paleolithic, they suddenly come into modernity and they become like children. They want the world's biggest clock. They want the world's biggest skyscraper. They want the world's coolest, whatever. It's kind of Guinness Book of Records, adolescent excitement with whatever's biggest and newest and shiniest. And the shopping malls, and it's all emptiness. And the mental health crisis, though, is absolutely catastrophic. 
I was talking to some Kuwaitis recently who said a lot of the young people can't get out of bed in the morning. They're just so destroyed by this cognitive dissonance. On one hand, they're still Arabs, but on the other hand, their whole lives focus on going to see the Christmas decorations at Harrods, and they find it very difficult to reconcile those things. And that cognitive dissonance is generating most of the dysfunctions of the modern Muslim world, including these reactive and deeply destructive fundamentalisms that seem just to want to destroy everything. So, uh, yeah, I'm not, you know, we're, we're a religion, we're not a tribe. Uh, we're talking about a global crisis that affects the Ummah as well as others. Um, it's not just non-Muslim kids who are addicted to pornography and scrolling on their phones and other dysfunctional forms of technologically enabled behaviour. It's kind of, you know, it's young people generally. Uh, and we really need to snap out of this them versus us. My Ummah is always right mentality because we're talking about problems whether it be the causes, like technology, or the effects, such as global warming, which are universal, which affect everybody and don't really pay much attention to uh, religious designations. Of course, when we turn to Islam, uh, we say that, we, we often say sometimes as as mere rhetoric, that Islam provides uh, solutions for, for human beings and, and for our state of mind. Uh, what are the building blocks that develop these characters uh, that you describe should ideally exist as a as a byproduct of embracing Islam. How do we, I mean, often, you know, uh, in our community, we can't get, get beyond sabr. You know, you should have sabr for every situation. And and uh, I wonder about whether that's sufficient. Uh, certainly it isn't, but whether that's sufficient in in describing, you know, the, the way in which our creator uh, uh, wants us to, uh, to, to develop these life skills of resilience and, and our ability to uh, to, to navigate uh, modern life appropriately? Well, sabr is a fundamental, necessary virtue. Uh, but we need to cultivate some of the active virtues as well. And religion is very much something about doing things rather than passively hoping for the best. Um, and what we do is, you know, another aspect of the Mi'raj, which I've been thinking about, as well as the guidance to nature, or if you like, the guidance to authenticity, there is also the gift of the prayer. And the prayer has been studied by a lot of Western Muslim thinkers like Rod Blackhurst and Lex Hickson and a lot of others who've really looked into the, the the geometry of it, the astral symbolism of it, the traditional understanding of the prayer as a cosmic act, which is also the gift of the Mi'raj which is not kind of coincidental. It was in that context that the prayer was gifted. So there's a way in which the prayer is a key way of maintaining a fitri sort of milk diet in the midst of the craziness of processed modernity. Uh, Because the prayer is a primordial act, which like all primordial acts is of worship, is linked to the movement of the solar system, in our case, uh, lunar calendar, Uh, but also the rising of the sun, setting of the sun. It's like Stonehenge, but it's much more ancient than that. Uh, Gobekli Tepe, which is much older than Stonehenge, which they're still digging up in Turkey, also indicates that primordial human beings regulated their lives through ritual and regulated that ritual through the movements of the sun and the moon. 
And that's exactly what we do with the Salat, which I don't think any other religious community that immediately comes to mind does, with the partial exception of, sort of aspects of the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur, fasting during the day. There's some uh, resonances there. So uh, my understanding of the Sunnah is that it is the underestimated but essential suit of armour, life support system, hazmat suit, if you like, that keeps us healthy when everything else is toxic, that uh, it reconnects us to practices which are part of our normative and healing humanity. We've always fasted, we've always prayed, we've always had holy places, we've always done these things that the sunnah is emphasizing in this very primordial and universal way. So uh, I think that's why you see people still flocking to the mosques and still fasting in Ramadan. They may not articulate it or they may articulate it in terms of a kind of pietism. I want to go to heaven, which is, of course, (laughs) entirely legitimate. But uh, the deeper aspect of the sunnah, which is that it gives us a primordial lifestyle that's connected to the very primordial prophetic city of Medina in the 7th century, is kind of understood intuitively rather than explicitly. So uh, uh, when you walk through the retail heaven, the outlet heaven, on your way to the Ryanair flight at Stansted, what keeps you sane and what makes you different and what stops you worshipping at all those shrines is the fact that you're also wondering where the prayer room is and the moon or the sun is moving. You can't do anything about that. That you're also thinking about what is halal and what is haram. Ancient human communities are very big about certain things which are taboo and not taboo, and that's also part of the ancient, ancestral, healthy working of of the brain, uh, and so on. So uh, even though we can't go back to the upper Paleolithic, and it's really not possible, still the sunna provides us with a form of life that uh, maximizes our chances of not being poisoned by the toxins of a completely out of control and 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 uh, poisonous modern world. Sometimes listening to um, to you and and of course what you've described there is 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 really profound in terms of how we should uh, re-navigate or reconfigure our lives to uh, to really bring meaning in in our rituals in the way in which we uh, interact with the world around us, but but. Is there a danger in, in thinking that the only way to be a good Muslim is to be an austere Muslim, to be abstinent in life and to shun the material? And is that a, is that a problem necessarily? And, and, you know, some Muslims would describe that as the only way by which they can, uh, they can pursue a life closer to uh, what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would like us or the life that he would like us to live. Well, I don't think so. Uh, you do find some Muslims reacting against the sort of Mardi Gras indulgence of modernity by retreating into a particularly austere Puritanism. But I don't think that is actually the prophetic way, uh, because the Holy Prophet, after drinking the milk and after receiving the gift of the prayer, comes back to life a life in which he is involved in the social life of his community, very much so, a life in which he is an important point of the economic and mercantile life of his community, Uh, a life in which he's married and has children, 
which is unlike the other choice, if you like, the choice of the wine, which is the sacramental idea, which is that you avoid this world, the monastic possibility, which is gigantic in Christianity, uh, which is that you take vows of chastity, poverty, obedience, and you leave it. So uh, our scholars have always emphasized that you reach heaven by going through the world rather than trying to go around it, because you can't really go around it because it's it's in you, it's part of your instincts, it's what you are. You can't, you can't jump out of your skin so easily. And the current clerical sex scandals in the churches indicate that it, it really doesn't, isn't working too well. So, yeah, we, we are a, a world-affirming tradition. There's something celebratory about Islam, which you experience in you know, Ramadan, for instance. It's austere, but it's also really kind of warm, social, amazing, not just after iftar, but generally it's it's a, a celebratory, almost Dionysiac time, I think, which is why people like Nietzsche, various other 19th century post-romantic philosophers, preferred Islam over Christianity massively because they saw Christianity as Apollonian. In other words, you flee the body, you flee desires, you flee pleasure, and try and exist in some kind of uh, discarnate world. Uh, whereas Islam is world-affirming. Nietzsche liked Muslim Spain, the sensuality of it, the poetry, the romance, the beauty of the Alhambra. He saw Islam as being an infinitely more world-affirming and therefore, well, in his case, virile, manly type of religion than Christianity, which he thought was this kind of milksop pacifist affair that couldn't really appeal to people who really want to, to live their lives. Uh, and I think there's, a, there's an element of truth in that, uh, that there is a, a ludic and a joyful aspect to traditional Muslim life. It has been lost in some modern Muslim Puritan circles because people are so anxious about everything and they think it's really bad to kind of relax and enjoy your Islam and enjoy your marriage and enjoy eating with friends. Uh, that's a kind of a creeping Christianization, I would say. Uh, but uh, the, the, the sunnah is, is still there. You know, we always say Islam is about practice. Practice means the sunnah. You may not understand why it's good for you, but just look at the alternatives and see where that's leading humanity. And how do you place uh, Imam Ghazali within this discussion? I mean, this may be an oversimplification, but the common narrative goes that uh, he, Imam Ghazali, faced a, a crisis in his 40s and he deserted uh, his living, his his uh, family, uh, and he lived a life uh, thenceforth in, in seclusion and, and away from others. Um, I mean, is this an oversimplification of Imam Ghazali? And, and what lessons can we take from his his crisis and the years uh, that he pursued after that crisis? Well, as people, especially sincere people, intelligent people sometimes do, he passed through, you know, a, a crisis. In his case, a crisis, well, he passed through two crises, but the one that's perhaps relevant here is that he became profoundly anxious about his own intention and about the effectiveness of a certain very athletic, uh, logic-chopping, theologizing approach to the nature of God. And he wanted something that would appeal to him in his wholeness as a human being, rather than just to a kind of hypertrophic development of, of, of the brain. Uh, so, yes, he went off as he had to in order to resolve himself. You know, he was sick 
we might say it was a mental illness nowadays, kind of, certainly a, a breakdown. Uh, but that was not the permanent resolution. He didn't go to a monastery because that's not the Sunnah, it's not the Muslim way. But he did associate with sort of sages in the deserts. People were in a retreat situation, engaged in the traditional ascetical practice of siyaha, holy wandering from place to place, uh, which is a Quranic man- mandate anyway. The Quran tells us to walk in the earth and to contemplate the majesty of heavens and the earth and nature and so forth. Uh, it's a healing. But he came back again and started to teach again. He re-entered the madrasa. He taught. He continued to compile books. So that's the difference, really, um, between the wine and the milk. Uh, sometimes we go through a tunnel, uh, but we don't kind of sit down and despair and say, well, let's wait for the afterlife. Uh, we continue uh, in the hope that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will restore us to health and we'll go back to our families, back to the madrasa, back to mu'amala. Religion is mu'amala, it's transaction with others. It's not a solitary form of navel-gazing. And Jake, this show will go out uh, during the month of Ramadan. And um, uh, I've often wondered about, uh, you've, you've touched on it there, about uh, the wisdom behind some of the acts and, and rituals within Ramadan and how uh, one needs to maximize uh, one's interaction with this month. Um, uh, can you inform us about some of the ca- some of the character building impacts we hope to achieve from our fast and the wider, broader uh, obligations and, and uh, pursuance of the sunnah that we undertake during Ramadan? Well, as I was saying earlier, fasting is something that every human spiritual tradition has found to be useful. And increasingly, we're aware even of its biomedical benefits. Intermittent fasting is something that the NHS will often suggest that people do. Because, again, to take us back to this sort of Stone Age image, uh, primordial humanity didn't graze or snack or drink coffee several times a day or go to the fridge or the Coke machine but would occasionally feast and then might be hungry and thirsty for the rest of the day. The metabolism is actually designed for that. So uh, as we return to that more normal form of being, certain things within us start to settle down, particularly towards the end of the month, as we're not constantly sugared up or um, other metabolic interferences which aren't normal to us um, are stilled. Uh, and in that context, <coughs> the context of detachment, tajreed, as Islam says, stripping away from these uh, worldly delights, uh, we find it easier to be centered and to focus and to be contemplative. We are not designed to be distracted by thousands of SMS messages every day. That's bad for the brain. That's bad for our lifestyle. It's really bad for us. We are designed for times of stillness. And that stillness represents uh, an opportunity for the soul to settle and to open up for the basic function of the heart to be operationalized for the possibility of vision, for the possibility of seeing beyond the surface of things, for the possibility of openness to those things that humanity has always been open to. We may not have religious experiences during Ramadan. Usually we don't. Usually I don't. But still... It is an opportunity to allow the chattering thoughts in the brain to settle down. 
Their chattering thoughts are often about immediate gratification. I need a snack or I need this or I need that. And in Ramadan, a lot of that is locked down. The brain gets used to the fact that it's just not going to happen and is therefore liberated and can start to think about other things. But we need to start locking down other things as well. And I think we can fast from a lot of those unnecessary scrolling activities, um, which interfere with sleep patterns also, uh, which can be an issue in Ramadan. Really, we should switch everything off, I think, after Maghrib and particularly after Aisha, just so that the brain can be calm. We can benefit in the Tarawih. We can have a good night's sleep um, because the more you've been staring at screens late at night, the more the natural cycle of sleep is going to be disrupted. So, yeah, it's a time for a return to the Fitra, a time to reorient ourselves towards the Qibla, a time to reconnect with the Qur'an, with the incantation of the eternal divine speech to drink that into our souls. It's uh, yeah, an opportunity to reflect more fully on our brokenness, on our weakness, on our vulnerability, uh, and therefore on the fragility of our sense of self. The modern project tries to make man or woman the yardstick or the measure of all things following the Enlightenment, religion was out and humanity was in, humanism. Uh, but when we really reflect on what we are, the human subject consciousness, and we're honest about it, it turns out that there isn't really much there, and certainly not much that's really commendable. There's a bunch of dusty old cobwebby memories there's certain reflexes, certain preferences for treats of various kinds, certain habits of self-justification to ourselves and to others. But it's not really this magnificent, almost divine uh, subject that the Enlightenment thought was going to be the measure of all things that could work out values and solve the problems of the universe. It's, 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 there's not as much there as we would like to think. And that's really helpful because that really crushes the ego and makes us realize our neediness, that we are fukara, needy, we depend on God, and that our vaunted independence and our sense of coolness and the very symbols that we adopt in order to emphasize our sense of self, the smart car, the latest phone, all of that stuff, which is just a, a kind of suit of armor that disguises our vulnerability. None of that really makes much sense when you realize that we're completely dependent on the creator, that after a few hours of not nibbling, we become kind of grouchy, weak, helpless. <clears throat> These are all fundamental lessons. Uh, it's the inkisar of which our tradition speaks of brokenness, which is absolutely essential. Pride is the worst of the deadly sins because it can't coexist with the fear of God. And uh, pride is that human weakness which is most thoroughly smashed by fasting. So it's a time of great opportunity, and we need to think about it carefully rather than just assume that it's an awkward blip in our calendar that somehow we're going to get through and a chance to visit relatives. No, it's everything in religion is a divine gift. And this is a, a particularly formidable uh, requirement that is formidable because the uh, benefits that can accrue to it, if it's done intelligently and with a good intention, are enormous.
the beauty of experiencing the Quran again, the beauty of more connection with friends and family, the beauty of Laylatul Qadr, the beauty of the Eid. It offers so much, but uh, that should have a vertical as well as a purely horizontal dimension. Ramadan ultimately is, you know, uh, fasting is for me, uh, the Hadith says. Uh, I myself directly reward it. It's that most vertical of devotions and the one that nobody really knows that you're doing because nobody really knows if you're fasting or not. They can see you praying, but you can't see somebody fasting. So, yeah, tremendous opportunity. And the ulama, the awliya of the ummah for forever have emphasized that so many openings and uh, transformations and talbas, um, tears shed happen you know, during this month. Uh, it's an opportunity that we should be open to. I often feel that what you've described it, the profound nature of religion, how uh, human beings should interact with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's message, it's often lost on us. And for all the reasons that you've described of modernity and how we live and choose to live our lives. But I suppose also uh, it is fair to say that in our formative lives, when we were growing up, when we were developing uh, knowledge about Islam and knowledge about the broader society, uh, there isn't really a place, why well, I, I didn't at least um, experience this, a place where or a, an institution or a, an avenue by which these character building skills are explained to, to the young man and to the young woman. I mean, I often, I'm sure you do as well, we often interact with, uh, with Muslims and myself included. And, and, you know, we're sort of working things out as we go along. You know, every Ramadan, we're, we're acquiring uh, new understandings about this month and how this month should interact with us and, and improve us. Um, what is the ideal situation? What does Islam say about, uh, or what can we take from our predecessors about how these character building how this development takes place and who needs to be responsible for the development of these characters? Well, this is, in a sense, the most important aspect of religion. A din khuluk religion is good character in the sense that if you don't have good character, you haven't really got the reality of Islam. There's something sick within you, some, some false qibla. Uh, in the traditional Islamic world, as well as the madrasas, where you learnt your fiqh and your tafsir and those essential things, there were also the Sufi lodges, even more numerous, the Teke, the Zawiya, the Khanaqah, the Dargah, which is where you went if you wanted your internal uh, violations to be sorted out, if you wanted the intention to be rectified. The madrasa can't do that for you. It's not on the curriculum. It's not what a madrasa is for. Uh, and that's part of the Ghazalian insight, that there has to be a structured education that is about the turbulences uh, of your inward life as well as a structured education about what you do outwardly with your limbs and in terms of the mu'amala with God and with, with creation. But in the modern West, the institutions that have been created, such as in the UK, the Darul Ulum infrastructure, which is huge now, maybe too huge, it's like 40 of them, teaching all of the nice Hanafi fiqh and the tafsir and the fatwas and so forth, that's fine. But what hasn't been imported is the infrastructure of the inward life. So traditionally in the subcontinent, where many British Muslims have their roots, you would have the Chishtis, the Saharawardis, the Kubrawis, the Naqshbandis, that whole world, with its you know, aberrations that attended some manifestations of that world. 
But that hasn't really been imported in the same way. So you can walk around Dewsbury and see the Durham Alorm and the Maktabs and the kids memorising. But where is the place where you can rectify your intention? Where is the place you can go if you're struggling to wake up for Fajr? Where is the teacher who can help you with that? Mm. That's the problem that we have, that we only have half of the necessary pedagogic infrastructure in the Western world, for which there are many explanations, one of which is the fact that there's been a kind of practical alliance between secularists and fundamentalists to close these places down. In Turkey, it's still illegal to run a Sufi lodge, despite Erdogan and everything, the Ataturk legacy is too strong. They had 400 of them in Istanbul. Ataturk closed them all. Uh, Nasser did the same in Egypt, etc. So uh, the fact that Islam has been externalized and shrunk so that it's teaching only these outward things rather than the inward heart, the life that, that enlivens them, uh, has resulted in all kinds of misery. So we have to go to the Muslim chaplain or the interfaith counsellor or go online and talk about our addictions or whatever it is. And, uh, it's not happening on a huge scale because we're all messed up one way or another. Uh, but we, we simply don't have the traditional sages, the traditional infrastructure, the traditional rituals, the traditional dream interpretation, all of that Muslim psychological wisdom that is so enormous, but is now just sitting in the libraries or maybe the memory of a few old people. Um, it's been a, a massacre, really, and uh, an unbalancing of the religion, which really should be based on inward and outward, mutually supporting each other. There has to be a kernel and a husk. Um, but we don't really have that. And that externalizing of religion turns it into a kind of meritorious pietism, point scoring, often very com competitive, um, often status-driven, sectarian, rivalry-based, which is rubbish. All of the things Ghazali hated most in religion that tends to motivate most of the rubbish that you see on internet chat rooms and fatwa wars. It's all just the turbulence of people who are purely externalized and haven't really made much progress in terms of refining themselves and uh, realizing the, the beauty that lies within, because that's the sweet part of religion, really, the inward liberation. So, yeah, it's that uh, profound imbalance in the institutional life, the discursive life of our communities, which is one reason for violent extremism, I suppose, is that they don't have the inner resources to deal with catastrophe, oppression, invasion, sectarian differences. So they, they, they malfunction, they lash out, and everybody loses from that. Uh, what is the solution? Well, I don't know. Maybe these are the end times. Maybe this is exactly what you'd expect when a community goes into terminal decline. It becomes externalized. Um, don't know. But one does note an increasing number of young people who are showing increased interest in these things. I had a recent visit from a group of young Saudis who are really interested in rolling back their traditional fundamentalism and looking at a traditional full understanding of the sunnah with the internal tarbiyah as well as the external ta'lim. And I find that throughout the ummah, people want a complete religion rather than just the externals of it. So inshallah, as time passes, that will become more of a mass movement and we'll see a restoration of the traditional balance.
and maybe just one follow-on question from that if, if i may um um i mean one can leave with a, a somewhat pessimistic uh you know uh, understanding of the ummah um uh are we in terminal decline or, or do you feel that um there is every possibility of of a revival within this within this ummah i mean the, the hadith of the prophet uh suggests that you know the ummah is like rain we don't know whether the first or the latter period is going to be uh better are we in terminal decline or is there a is there a way to improve uh in your mind our our ummah and our situation well, the Qur'an's eschatology tells us that the world is in terminal decline. <laughs> That's just how things are. Um, religion, I think Muslims tend to panic too much uh, because in my position I see people from other religious traditions. Just yesterday I did an interview with a local Christian radio station about what we do in Ramadan, and they couldn't get their head around the fact that so many of us pack the mosques for really long ceremonies. They've been fasting all day and thousands of people are doing this thing when they're in Lent and Lent might mean giving up milk chocolate or something. Or you know, It's really on that level nowadays. Uh, it blows their minds that there are still places of worship that are overflowing with people, including a lot of young people, and that people are doing objectively difficult things. Uh, even more important than that is the fact that the basic forms are intact. If you look at what this uh, Papa Papa Francis in Rome, as they call him, is doing, destroying the last relics of the traditional Latin mass, which is about the most beautiful thing they have. And genuinely, you know, it's not our theology at all, but it's a magnificent thing. Punishing anybody who is trying to celebrate it without a complex bureaucratic process of authorization from a bishop and replacing it with various vernacular things that are just made up. And the tremendous pain that traditional Catholics who like their history and their historic ways are experiencing as a result of this interference. Nobody is doing that to the Muslim worship. Nobody is coming along and saying, I am the Arch Mufti of Canterbury, and you will now do everything in uh, English, and you will have men and women mixing together during the prayer, and you'll do X, Y, Z. Uh, nobody's doing that really in any mosque anywhere in the Ummah. And that's a kind of miracle. So we are protected in terms of what really matters, which is the Sunnah, the former. Um, and I think that's one reason for the ongoing strength of Islam, that people know that what they're going to see is, is real, is from a great age of faith rather than just dreamt up by some trendy council in the 1960s that's endlessly divisive and controversial. We're, we're more or less united in our forms of worship, which is really what the religion is about. We still know what gender is about, more or less, which the outside world is increasingly baffled by. We have ideas of normativity and various forms of human life and practice reproduction. Um, so from the point of view of conservative believers in Christianity who are shattered by the wreckage of Christianity in Europe, Islam looks like a very strange success story. We don't see it in those terms because we like to groan all the time. But in terms of the catastrophe that's overtaken them, you know, I mean, the church where my ancestors used to worship, where my father was baptized, my grandparents were married, etc., that's now a mosque. This is a big transformation in British society, and uh, there's no reason to suppose that it won't continue. We had 
At the moment, we're having between eight to 10 registered conversions at the Cambridge Mosque every month now. Despite the Islamophobia and ISIS and all of the stuff, people are still coming in. Very amazing people sometimes. So you know, I'm not really pessimistic. I'm kind of amazed by the ongoing success of what really matters in the religion. I just wish that people would stop arguing with each other over things that are not of the essence. Um, but that requires some kind of heart surgery, I'm afraid. And there are structural problems in their psyches that make them endlessly insecure and argumentative. So may Allah help them and help us all. I mean, Jazakallah, check out the Hakim Murad. It's really been a pleasure to uh, discuss uh, these issues with you today. And uh, allow us to meet this Ramadan and, and embrace it with all of its... Uh, is all of its greatness. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.